I, I think also there's this notion of we're so early that we barely understand it. I think wait, wait, 300 years from now and Bitcoin has been ascendant for centuries and everyone assumes this is how it always worked. I think our level of understanding of all of this will be higher. In our grandchildren's minds, we, us three here in this conversation will be drooling idiots. Yes, exactly. Uh, yeah. so, uh, there's no way around that. So so I, I hope it at least has entertainment value so, then, so they can laugh at us. Welcome back to the Freedom Footprint Show. The Bitcoin Philosophy Show with Knut Svanholm and me, Luke the Pseudofin. Today, we're joined by Dhruv Bansal, the co-founder of Unchained Capital a financial services company building products for long-term Bitcoin holders. In this episode, we explore the relationship between physics and economics. We discover all about Unchained Capital and the relevance of collaborative custody for long-term holders. We discuss KYC and the future of Bitcoin regulations. And finally, we deep dive into quantum computing and the interplanetary horizons of the blockchain. But before we dive in, a quick reminder that the best way to support the show is to send us a boost or stream us some sats using a value for value podcasting app such as Fountain. If you're listening to the show as a podcast, check it out on Fountain. You can earn sats from listening and you can support us on all your other favorite shows. You can also support us on Geyser Fund or send sats directly to our lightning address, freedom at geyser.fund. And if you want to exchange your dirty fiat, you can support us on Patreon. All our links are in the description. If you're watching on YouTube, don't forget to like the episode and subscribe to the channel. Even if you're listening as a podcast, head over to our YouTube channel and subscribe to us there. It would be a big help. And finally, we want to thank today's sponsors, Sabi Wallet, Orange Pill App, The Bitcoin Way, Zellox, and BitcoinBook.shop. All their information is in the description. We'll be talking a bit more about them later. And now, without further ado, here is Dhruv Bansal on The Freedom Footprint Show. Dhruv, welcome to The Freedom Footprint Show. Thanks for joining us. Thanks for having me, guys. It's a pleasure to be on. Pleasure to have you here, Ruv. Yeah, let's start off with uh, a uh, presentation of you. Can you give us the TLDR on uh, Dhruv Bansal? Who are you and uh, wh when did you find Bitcoin and all of this stuff? Sure. <clears throat> I started out my career as a, as a physicist at the University of Texas uh, at Austin, like this way back in, I think, 2005 or so. So dated myself, um, just pre-Bitcoin. My research area was kind of focused on you know, big human systems. Even though I was, even though I was a physicist, I was often taking real world data sets and stock markets, school systems, economies, whatever, looking at them from, you know, kind of a physics perspective. There's some interesting things I, I felt that, you know, even physicists could say uh, about those complex systems. That led to like a big love of programming and data sets and interacting online in an era that was like a little bit just pre GitHub, pre a bunch of tools that we kind of take for granted today for AWS, for example. And it was just really hard to move data around. And so I kind of fell into no, no plan at all. This is not my life plan. I was going to be a physicist, but, um, I kind of fell into this startup with, uh, Joe Kelly, my co-founder here at, at Unchained, um, and third co-founder, Flip Cromer, business department. So the three of us before Unchained started this business around data and cloud computing and DevOps and all these trends that were kind of colliding in that, you know, mid 2000s era. Um, a lot of stuff that was coming, you know, out of Google and sort of becoming open source. And so I really learned a lot. We wound up starting a business, kind of building out infrastructure like this to help people move data around, often in the enterprise, you know, banks and big companies and manufacturers. That's kind of where we found success ultimately. We started in a nerdier area of the world, but that's where we found success. So in this process, I learned a lot about like distributed systems and, you know, like machine learning, but like also like how a distributed database works and how time is a really important idea in those systems. And of course, these are all centralized databases, right? They're, they're 
distributed, but they're all run by the same guy, often me, right? Like setting up a large cluster of machines. Um, somewhere in that story, I met someone um, at a conference, open source conference about databases and stuff like who was talking about Bitcoin. And in my head, I'm just like, I can't think of it as anything other than a distributed database. You know, like I just, I don't know anything about money. I don't have any money. I've never heard of Austrian economics. Probably wouldn't have cared about it if I had. This guy's talking about so much about the code, the blockchain, this blockchain, that, right? And I'm just like, I had enough background in these distributed systems and database stuff to sort of understand that like, okay, this is actually a real thing. Like this could work. I, I concede that this is a very clever and interesting design uh, for a database, but I could not understand why it should have a price, like what the money has to do with any of it. Like I just, I thought it was, um, there's these esoteric programming languages like BrainFuck and things like this that are like designed to be hard to use. They're like a Rube Goldberg machine. And like the whole idea is like, can you do something useful even though the machine you made was designed to be perversely hard to use in a fun way for programmers, right? And so I thought that, that I was like, this is what this is, right? Like I have a, I have a Cassandra cluster over here that I'm throwing like terabytes in every day. You're giving me the blockchain. What is this for? So I, I thought of it as a database and, and then I dismissed it. Right. Also, Bitcoin price, this is 2011 or so. Bitcoin price is like less than a dollar. So I'm like, man, it's not, who cares? Fast forward a couple of years, we sold the business. I made some money for the first time in my life. I bought some dumb things. And one of the dumb things I thought I might buy would be Bitcoin because, of course, it's now 2013. I checked in on the price. It's like $100 or something, a coin. And I'm like, how the hell did that happen? Like in just two years, this thing that I thought was like an esoteric database tool worth less than a coin is now worth hundreds of dollars. Who is, Oh, and then I, oh my God, if people are actually going to use this thing as money, if like they actually start doing that, then it might work. I should buy some, right? I'm already too late. You know, I might as well get in now and get a little bit. And um, so that was the beginning for me, right? Like sort of feeling the FOMO, like oftentimes people feel, and then making a speculative investment, um, not understanding anything about how it actually worked, just looking at that number going up and being like, yeah, all right, I'll throw some cash into this. Oh, only put a little bit in, of course, um, wish and, and happy that I didn't put in more. And then I didn't think about it for a couple of years. Joe and I, uh, you know, got acquired. We went and worked for our acquirer for a little bit. Wound up quitting because it's terrible sometimes to work for large businesses and did nothing for a year, kind of floated. Joe got married. Uh, I built a house, like we just did a bunch of life stuff. And the whole time I'm just thinking, like, what, what's the next business? What do we want to do next? Um, and then ultimately around 2015, 2016 or so, we're starting now, we're like, all right, let's start another business. Like we're, we're doing the research. We're, we're thinking about problem domains. We're supposed to be working on all these interesting applications of data and computer science to 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 construction or food industry or or this is our hypothesis about what we want to accomplish and then neither of us did the work we instead just read about bitcoin and kind of were falling into the rabbit hole and we didn't have that expression for it at the time that's what was happening to us and so at some point around 2016 i remember we just admitted that we were like i think we're really into bitcoin and i think bitcoin is going to be a giant thing in the future we should just start a Bitcoin company. And it felt a little crazy because um, there weren't a lot of Bitcoin businesses. And we felt a little bit late in some ways and a little bit early. Bitcoin's total market cap of that era is like six to $8 billion or something like this. So yeah, early days. Um, but yeah, it was a long journey from being a scientist to kind of discovering and becoming a data person to eventually realizing that the blockchain, even despite that it's got all these data-like words, is actually really more about money and sort of building a business that I think hope, I'm, one thing I'm proud of, we didn't approach Bitcoin in, at Unchained like it was a technology. We always approached it like it was a money. 
And so we built a financial services company. And so that's something that I think we got right. Fascinating. Uh, this is one thing that, that has always like baffled me that, that physicists and engineers, uh, seem to be like the, the early days of bitcoins are data scientists, physicists, and engineers mostly, right? Crypto anarchists and whatnot. Crypto anarchists, yeah. okay. <laughs> like, like but, but yeah, the, the, the crypto anarchists are there as well, of course, in the cypherpunks. But mm-hmm. uh, it, it's only later, like in 2016, 17, that you get the Saifedeans and uh, the, the, the economics uh, branch of it, really. So, so it seems like like these people, very few of them understand anything about Austrian economics. Uh, <laughs> and as you said, you know nothing about that. Like, uh, how are your knowledge level of Austrian economics these days. I guess it's a uh, uh, low to mid. Low to mid? Yeah, like I think, so truthfully, something that's been exciting for me starting Unchained and having to build a financial services business is I just learned tremendously more about money, economics, like the, the federal and, and governmental and non-governmental apparatuses that like create and are responsible for the infrastructure of money, which is then so deeply connected to so much of the rest of the world. So I feel like I'm I'm learning a tremendous amount, like by starting this business and, and that's been great. Like Austrian economics as a particular like flavor of economics as distinct from, let's say Keynesian or other approaches, like I'm, I'm, I'm on the outside of that discussion. I have nothing original or new to say, you know? And so I don't go wading into it and offer my opinion one way or the other. I tend to be a little bit timid about talking shit about things I don't really understand. I, and I, I would say, honestly, it's something I, I, I often talk with Parker about this. Parker, who pre- previously worked on chain for a long time and, you know, remains a close business and, and a close friend of mine. And, uh, I thought Parker had a completely different background with how he found Bitcoin. He's not a programmer or a physics guy, anything like that. You know, he's, he's, uh, he deeply understands banking and macroeconomics and trading, all, all these kinds of things. And for him, the economic aspects of Bitcoin, and he, and I don't know, I, I imagine he might describe himself as an Austrian. I don't know, but like those, these are the things he's super knowledgeable about. Right. And I also looked to him and I'd be like, well, I think you could have made Bitcoin with a, you know, with tail emission. I think that would have worked like mechanically. Like, tell me why that's a bad idea. And then he would give me answers. He'd be like, oh, this is why. And so like, I don't know, man, like I'm not going to accept his word on it, but I, but I, I like his reasoning. It's a hypothesis. It's a, it's a theory. It's, it makes sense. But then, you know, he would flip it on to me and be like, so why is it true that like this thing actually can't be like decrypted? Like, how does that work in the code? You know, and I like, oh, that part I totally get. This is how that works. Like, that's why I have complete confidence in that aspect of how this system. So what I, what I, what I've loved about Bitcoin for me personally, as well as for like the community around it is you cannot be like the master of all the fields. It's impossible. You come to it because of something that, that draws you in. Uh, and I think, I think you're right for in the super early days, like you have to be one of a few different kinds of people because there was no other way you were going to hear about Bitcoin and there wasn't educational material about it for you to easily digest. So you had to kind of do the work to understand it yourself. And you're only going to do that if you had some enough background, right? For me, it wasn't the economics that drew me in. It was the technology, right? Which is a, a sort of later on, I've realized it's not that important. Um, it's actually much more economics that, that drives everything in, in Bitcoin. But and it was initially that that hooked me. And also the whole energy thing, Bitcoin, physics, energy, time. That's a very sexy triangle of thoughts to think it about. It is, it is. So like these kinds of things brought me in. And I think... In those areas, I still feel strongest and I feel like strongest to talk about, well, what do I think about Bitcoin and energy or time and all these ideas? And I'm still a little bit relying on the rest of the community to represent from the economic side. This is why Bitcoin makes the best argument. Like I sort of need them to, to talk about that part, you know? Yeah. 
Uh, it reminds me of uh, one of my father's favorite sayings, which was, it's better to be a complete idiot than to be a complete, uh, uh, an idiot in a specific field that only knows <laughs> one thing. <laughs> There's a Swedish expression, so I have a hard time translating it, but like the thing was, yeah, it's better to know a little about a lot of stuff than to, to, to just specialize. And, and there's some truth to that, even though I believe in the division of labor as well. So you should, you should specialize, uh, but you should also don't trust and verify. So you should know a little about everything. The thing with the physicists and the engineers, the thing I find so fascinating is that physicists and engineers often get Austrian economics, um, but more so than, than traditional economists like, and Keynesian, whoever has read economics in school, they don't get it, but a physicist or an engineer knows what, what you can and what you cannot do with mathematics and what works and what, what doesn't work. And I think that's very closely related to economics because you can pretty easily see when you, when you accept that valuations are subjective, it's kind of easy to draw the conclusion that you can't really do anything with mathematics and economics, like, <laughs> except, you know, whatever a price signal says, and you can add up uh, the cost of a stuff, but you can't really predict the future using ma mathematics. All, all your models are destroyed, the type of thing, like, because it's all subjective. So, uh, definitely, I think, um, we, people definitely talk about physics envy, you know, and coming from like microeconomics or other places where like there are these big equations and, and like def, there's definitely a, a massive degree of skepticism, um, from phys actual physicists about like work that looks a little too mathematical, but that doesn't actually have like natural laws or like hard things that we've experimentally measured that we can like, you know, build all that mathematics and drape it all over. Right. Cause, um, it definitely makes people a little nervous. Are you saying that this equation on my t-shirt here is wrong? <laughs> well, look, I, think it, I think we can accept metaphor, right? But I think the yeah, point yeah. is that it's, it's not meant to be <laughs> metaphorical, right? Those, those, those equations are meant to be real equations, right? That in physics, in theory, they are, yeah. But I'm talking about even in, in folks who try to physicize economics, right? They're, they're not saying it's just a metaphor. It's, it's not just a t-shirt slogan. It's supposedly a model for the real world that we should then, make, in fact, make policy decisions on, right? So it's meant to be very real. And I don't think, oftentimes I don't think it is. Yes. And I think, I think, I, I think physicists often see that there's, um, I'll, I'll give you a, a quick story of, uh, so my graduate school advisor, a physicist, like works, nothing like works, um, in a lot of broad areas. And part of the reason I think I found myself studying all these crazy systems is because he was just very, has broad ranging interests and encouraged me to do so. And when I talked to him about Bitcoin, because of course, you know, I'm trying to orange fill everybody in my life. And I say, you know, Bitcoin, economics, energy, da, da, da. Turns out like he's been following another sort of physics person who kind of went into economics and really talked about energy. And like, in some sense, right? Like if you think about whole human economies as just, you know, statistical systems, shouldn't they obey things like the law of large numbers and the equal partition and like theorem and like all these statistical mechanics ideas? Um, it's a very different approach to bringing math into economics than um, perhaps traditional economists might have done. Like, you know, for example, he has interesting theorems like, can you kind of figure out based on the distribution of wealth or something like that, uh, what kind of, wh whether the system is in equilibrium or not, right? Like the way that physicists might approach, I don't know, a box of gas in another or something like this. Um, it's pretty interesting stuff, but I think at least according to my advisor, and I, I later met with this, with this guy, his name is Victor Yakovenko. He does a lot of interesting work. So I, I actually wound up meeting with him and talking with him a whole bunch about Bitcoin. I gave a presentation to his research group at the University of Maryland about like why Bitcoin is super, should be super interesting for people that think the way that he does. But according to him, he's like often struggled 
bringing deep concepts of energy into like, you know, macroeconomic discourse and, and sort of saying, hey, no, you really need to like, our entire worldview as economists needs to be built around the notion of energy being scarce and thinking about the economy as a machine that like moves energy around. And that's not like, I think the overwhelming way that economists approach their field, but it's a really interesting, I think, um, way, at least to someone like me, who again, is a physicist and a Bitcoiner, I'm like, yeah, that makes more sense than a lot of the other stuff I hear. So I don't know. I would say it's a dangerous path though. Uh, like if, if an idea like that gets the attention of some wannabe central planner, that is a good, uh, you know, hierarchy ladder climber, then it may be tested on real humans. And that's always a bad idea in economics to, to, to try to, you know, supervise an economy. Yeah. So, um. Bitcoin is often said to be backed by energy, and by that people mean that the the, the mining computers um, sacrifice energy in order to secure the network and find the next block and thereby be paid in Bitcoin for doing so by the users, right? So uh, my latest this shtick, if you will, or stick, if is it shtick or stick? No, uh, actually it's shtick. Shtick, you got it right. It's shtick, right? Uh, it's, it's not backed by energy, it's backed by human action, because behind all those um, ASICs is always a human actor choosing to buy them and choosing to run the software and choosing to plug them in and do the thing. So everything in Bitcoin requires uh, a human being to act. It does nothing by itself. It still needs human beings acting on their acting on incentives to, to function. And the funny thing is when you, when you really boil that idea down to what, what it what it actually means is like uh it's just an agreement on a fixed set of rules and the reason we agree on these rules is that these rules we, we see mm, by understanding the system we we can tell that these rules are more expensive to try to cheat than to follow the if we just follow the rules it's it's more profitable for us than to try to cheat them and if we do we can get this a uh, finite number, uh, which you can divide uh, everything by, uh, and you get into this wonderful world of hyper-Bitcoinization, at least in the back of your head, when you imagine what the future might hold, and and then you think, holy shit, and then you just follow along. And if you think about all the, all the machines and all the physics that are involved in Bitcoin and all the mathematics, all of that is just extensions of our minds, really. All the ASICs are doing are their speeding up the rate of calculation that we can do with our heads because running the code is just solving the equation and uh, doing a hash like you might as well do it by hand it will take you a lot more time and it won't be very efficient but the at the end of the day the ASIC is just a fancy abacus uh, so so that's that's a lot of what I talk about uh, these days and how everything in Bitcoin is, it's just information, which, which means that it's, it's just us and all the computers used in it are just tools to make us better. But Bitcoin itself, it's not like other things on computers, uh, which may or may not be us, but Bitcoin is definitely us because it's us agreeing on a fixed set of rules and it's totally vo voluntary. So it, it, Bitcoin is the Bitcoiners as, as the way I see it. What, what do you say to that? I think this comes back to maybe your prior question around being an Austrian or, or knowing much about Austrian economics. Like, I think some of the language around human action and this kind of stuff is it, that I'm, I'm not trying to disagree or say it's wrong or anything. I, I, I think, I think I understand those words in the way you mean them. It sort of makes sense to me. But the language that I choose to use to describe, I think the same idea is it's just markets. 
right? And I don't believe that Bitcoin is made of energy, even though I think I've said things like that, like, you know, either earlier in my life or while drinking or whatever. It's, it's poetic. It's a poetic way to think about Digital it. Digital like energy. You know, yeah. Yeah. It's much like, it's much <laughs> like your teacher, this slogan. It's a little bit of a metaphor, right? Like, um, I think if I want to be more precise, I would say that Bitcoin is sold for energy. And that doesn't mean that it is energy, right? That's, that's a very different statement. Just because something is exchanged for something doesn't make it that thing. And so I think Bitcoin is a market in which we exchange energy for Bitcoin. Oh, oh you mean it's bought? It's bought for energy, right? Or, yeah. And, and of course, an exchange can be looked at as a buy or a sell, depending on which asset you think. Yeah, yeah. Uh, but I, may, I mean, the process of mining is really buying Bitcoins for energy, in a way. Since you sacrifice energy to get the Bitcoin. Yeah, it's from the miner's perspective, I would say that you are buying the Bitcoin with this energy. And I would say from the network's perspective, they are selling the Bitcoin for that energy. Yeah, uh, uh, which implies the the somewhat vulgar word word monetary energy, which is like the, this cross between physics and, and praxeology that can't really, they don't really mix. Yeah, it's, it's, it's a metaphor. I mean, that's, that's fine. Yeah, like, but, it, that's, but that's not a real thing. Like, it's just, there's actual energy. I mean, real energy is, is used to make, and if, you will, if you would like the human choices that go into that decision, like someone has to make the choice to use that energy to create hash rate, and then they sell that hash rate for Bitcoin. And so I think, sometimes I think about like, Bitcoin uses energy, to, like it doesn't really even use energy. People use energy to buy Bitcoin. And that's just a market phenomenon. And it's so much of what we find compelling about Bitcoin, in my view, and so many of its strengths, I think perhaps you would agree with this, this corollary to your earlier statement is like, because of the freedom or the human action, or, or in my words, the market that underlies Bitcoin, that's really what creates the properties we want. So the uncensorability, this, the robustness, the scalability, like these all come from the fact that like someone is being paid to provide the service and the mechanism of paying them is robust and hard to stop. And so the market is just hard to stop and grows tremendously quickly and has no barriers to entry no regulations other than the very s simple, clear regulations that exist in the code base. Right? Those are part of the contract, if you like, of the market and how it must um, build and settle goods. So like there are regulations, they're just not regulations that are like, you know, by fiat in a parliamentary or legislative machine, right? They're just sitting there in the code and everyone has these really strong protections and the barriers to entry are extremely low and the rewards are real. And so it grows tremendously quickly. And that's an amazing thing. And I think I, the, I also, like my shtick, if you like right now, is um, we need to stop thinking about blockchains and technology and anything that Drew, you know, found interesting in 2011 about Bitcoin. Like, that's not the point. Like, we need to think about the economic incentives and the markets. And we need to think, how do we build markets to do other things that are as robust as the market we have at layer one that allows Bitcoin to operate? And of course, that market is going to have to use Bitcoin because the strength of the currency is going to help define the strength of those incentives. And for me, a lot of the discourse that Bitcoiners and altcoiners are sort of having in between them is like they're talking across purposes, right? Like altcoiners have decided the blockchain is the thing that matters and they want to invest in the technology of the blockchain and making it more capable and da 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 da. And of course, leads to centralization because not really thinking about it as a market. Whereas Bitcoiners, I hope, are more thinking about it as a market because frankly, their blockchain is not a very powerful one from a computing perspective. Bitcoin blockchain can't do certain things that other people's blockchains can. And so we're actually protecting ourselves from a whole swath of bad ideas. And we're forced into, therefore, thinking about things like layer two, right? Which are 
separate. They're not a block. Like Lightning is not a blockchain in any way. It's just a peer-to-peer application that offers market incentives to use Bitcoin to solve certain problems for other Bitcoiners. That's a very healthy way, I think, to engineer solutions to problems um, using Bitcoin. Yes, yes, we agree completely. And this is also why we use the we don't use the term altcoins here on the Freedom Footprint Show. We uh-huh. we use the term uh, what we in Spain would call monedas de mierda or something. Uh-huh. 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 So uh, gotcha. Yes, exactly. So um, that's the preferable term here. All right, from one thing to another. Um, tell us about on-chain capital. I mean, uh, there's a lot of a lot of things going on. I just recently started collaborating with the. Uh, the Bitcoin advisor in Australia, right? Yes. Yes, we did. Yeah, I think a little bit more publicly and formally, but that's been a long relationship for many years. I think just in general, this concept of working with advisors is something that is is really interesting to me. Um, I've often spoken personally that, you know, I think I have an incredible financial advisor, but they really don't like Bitcoin or they don't get it or they think I'm too heavily invested in Bitcoin. And that's not a perspective that really resonates with me. Um, I think I'm the right. I think I'm the right amount of invested in Bitcoin, which is I have as, about as few dollars as I can tolerate having. That's, <laughs> my, that's my life. And I, th- I think my advisor performing their fiduciary duty towards me, and they don't agree with some of my worldview around this stuff. They kind of think I'm making a mistake, and they're like always trying to steer me towards. I think you should sell some Bitcoin. You have a lot of wealth locked up in Bitcoin and an unchained capital, which is actually just more Bitcoin, right? Um, so like sell some of that, go buy ETFs and hold on to those. And that's very good advice, I, I, I think, um, on some level. And I think my advisor has to give me that advice, but it's not advice that, that, that I'm going to ever take. And so there's a, there's a gap. <laughs> so it's, so it's not good advice then? Well, I mean, I guess what's good in this case, right? It's like, depending on, if it turns out he's right, it's going gonna, it's gonna to be good advice, right? I should have done that. But I, if it turns out I'm right, then of course it's bad advice on a level, right? Um, there's also knowing oneself and, and, and so on. So it's like, I've, I've come to accept that there's a big gap a lot of times between a person who has like gone into Bitcoin and then, and gone far and then any traditional form of financial advice. But at the same time, like I really value my financial advice. They solve a lot of problems for me in like many of the areas of my life that aren't directly sitting related to Bitcoin. Um, so I think it's generically a very useful person to have. Not, not everybody needs one, you know, like I think I, I'll speak for Joe when we both sold our business and we made some money. I immediately went and got a financial advisor. Joe immediately started reading S1s and managing his own investments, right? And it's like, I'm not going to do that. So like I hired an investor, or, 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 an advisor, right? So different strokes, different people. I get it. Like not everybody needs it, but I need it. Like I'm not great with money and I need a person to tell me uh, what to do sometimes and give me good advice. But when that person has a completely different worldview about what's happening with money, suddenly it becomes hard again, right? And so I, I love the idea that there exists now a brave population of financial advisors who are willing to like experience ridicule, take on personal risk, perhaps, like be one of the first people in their country or their jurisdiction talking about how actually, no, my fiduciary responsibility is to tell you to buy Bitcoin in some appropriate amount to help you do that securely, right? To help you learn about keys, to help you think about inherit, because this is a new asset class and um, I've come to believe, truthfully, that there, you know, I think a financial advisor has a investment management mandate. Typically, when they are managing dollars, they're they're part of what they have to do is they have to grow those dollars. That's like part of what you expect from from them. In a world that's ever in, like sort of hyper Bitcoinizing, like that that requirement that mandate is is minimized. If they're helping you manage your Bitcoin, right? Like they're not they don't need to invest it. It's going to grow. It's it's deflationary. Right? Like that's uh, they don't need to do that work. 
So in a sense, like what replaces that work? And I think there's a lot to replace it. Like there's a lot of things to learn now about key management and sort of inheritance and security and all sorts of other aspects of Bitcoin ownership that are, are totally unique and different than traditional financial planning and investment management. But I do think that these are the remit of advisors. And so I'm seeing with the, the our partnership in Australia and, and hopefully more uh, coming partnerships with other advisors and other firms, like people who are taking on that challenge, they're saying, okay, it's not just my job to tell you that Bitcoin is good or educate you about it or help you decide on an allocation. It's actually, I have to go further. I can't just say, go buy 10% of your net worth in Bitcoin and let you go use Coinbase. I, I need to help you actually come up with a real solution. So are you thinking about self-custody? Maybe collaborative custody is the right model for you. Maybe I need to hold a key as your advisor in a quorum that you also still have control. Like There are lots of interesting structures right there that, that get to be created. And I think the best advisors are already thinking about those issues. Yes. And, and uh, you know, there's no uh, one size fits all solution for this. Every, every Bitcoiner needs their own solution to all of these problems, really. It's so, so personal. Since it's just information at the end of the day, it's, it becomes part of you and it's very, very personal. And I always joke around with Peter Dunworth, the, the Bitcoin advisor about these things and say, I tell him that like you have the easiest job in the world for the next hundred years. Like all you need to tell your customers is buy as much Bitcoin as you can. Like, and he, he has this thesis that as long as you have one Satoshi more every year, you're a total winner. Like there's no way you can lose if you have one Satoshi more this year than what you had last year. And there's something to that. Mm -hmm. yeah, that's an interesting framing, but I, I, I think you know this, but just to say it out loud, like it is not an easy job. It is not easy to be one of the first people in, in your industry to come out and say, Bitcoin is good. Like, trust me, hey, all regulators come and look at me and, you know, inspect every little thing that I do because you think I'm somehow now doing something untoward with my clients, right? Like there's a lot of costs to deciding to be public about supporting Bitcoin in that industry. Absolutely. You have you have to go to El Salvador to be a, a financial advisor properly these days, or, I guess. Or you, or you <laughs> got to be brave and you got to be willing to do it on your own and you don't get a lot of the protections of a massive firm that is too timid to endorse your strategy. Yeah. Ahead of the curve. Exactly. <laughs> so so what else is going on at uh, Unchain? What, what are you working with at the moment? So uh, the advisory is just, you know, one of the leaf nodes of a, of a big tree of value that we're trying to create here. You know, I feel like the core, the trunk of that is just the concept of collaborative custody, you know, something that we came to very, very early in our business's history. Just it, mul there's multi-sig, which is, you know, built in a Bitcoin. Anybody can use multi-sig through free tools and wallets, some of which we've created like Caravan, but there's collaborative custody, which is the notion that multiple parties should be holding those multiple keys. And come up, as you say, with a bespoke like model that fits the situation. And sometimes different quorum sizes, different allocation of keys to different parties that is appropriate or not appropriate, depending on the person and the product. And so I think the you know, way to think about Unchained is we couple the custodial solution to the financial product, and we don't agree that they should be separate. We think they have to be together in this early stage of um, you know Bitcoin adoption. And so when you get evolved at Unchained, it's a multi-sig vault, it's two of three. And because of collaborative custody, you as the vault owner, the depositor, the funds holder, you're going to have two keys and Unchained's going to have the third. So this makes you sovereign, right? Like you have two out of the three keys, two keys are necessary and you can move the funds at any time. If you lose a key, then you can always work with Unchained and now we'll have the second key and we can recover and sweep the funds. But of course, because we only have one key, we can never move them on our own. This is a, a beautiful compromise between the 
strengths of self-custody uh, and without the dangers, right, of being singularly responsible yourself for doing all this. Some people can do that. Not everybody can. And so this is a great solution. The same exact multi-sig structure, two of three, is what Unchain also uses to power our lending program. So you can borrow against Bitcoin. You can collateralize the value of your Bitcoin and get dollars out. Um, you don't have to sell it, which is almost always economically the right decision because Bitcoin grows so quickly. You definitely don't want to sell it if you can avoid it. So we still use a two of three multi-sig for our loans, but we choose to distribute the keys in a different quorum. So instead of you as the, as the borrower holding two keys, which would allow you to just you know walk away with the collateral, you only get to have one. And Unchained will have a second key and we'll have a third key held by an independent third party. It's still a two of three and each party has one key. So no single party can now move the funds on their own. This is a very stable structure. If we want to liquidate your loan or we need to return it to you or whatever it is, we're going to have to collaborate either with you as the borrower or with that independent third party. And so this is a really nice conceit because it gives us a lot of safety around collateral management. Um, you know, as the borrower, we're not rehypothecating your assets on the back end, right? Like these are very powerful protections and they're delivered to all the participants in the, in the custody through a cryptographic channel. So you don't even have to trust that we're doing this. You can verify that product works the way that we're describing. And I think part of the reason that Unchained is one of the few lenders in the Bitcoin collateralized world left, at least, you know, in the world and in the United States is because of these constraints and protections. You know, I'm a big believer that Almost everything that, that is allowed is, you know, mandatory almost, um, or will happen. And so if you put in hard constraints in your business, like we can never do this prevents whole, like, like mo modes of behavior and malfeasance and whatever else, you know, Unchained has never had to, um, ask ourselves, should we rehypothecate our clients assets? Should we make an investment in this dangerous thing to make a bunch of money for our own business? Can't do it. Right. I, I would like to believe we never would do it, even if we had the ability but we don't have the ability. And that means we never have to ask the question. So we don't have to rely on our moral character or our strength or like the alignment of our executive. We just built it into the product that's impossible to do it. I love that. And it means that I don't have to constantly be a cultural, you know, watchdog, making sure everybody is doing all the right things. It's just built in. And I think that's super powerful. And this is like in line with the Bitcoin ethos, I guess, in a sense then, is that, is that why you make the moral choices you make or, or is there it's, another? It's, it's a mix, you know, truthfully. Like I think I'm, I would say today in 2023, I can say truthfully that I think this aligns better with the Bitcoin ethos just overall. But I would say that in, in 2017, 18, when this was all being built out, I don't know that that was the reason I was building it. Like the biggest reason I was building it was security. Because I looked at, okay, what is my budget? I am a seven person startup. You know, I have this much money. How will I protect my clients' funds? Am I really going to be able to do a better job than these giant exchanges that literally were hacked, you know, last week or whatever? And I, you know, I'm, I'm scratching my head being like, man, there's no way big companies get hacked all the time. I will never be able to keep this stuff safe on my own. And so what do I do? Do I just not solve the problem and make it Bitco's problem or Coinbase's problem or give it to an, uh, a custodian? Like that, that is like almost the rational choice. Because you say, this is very hard. I don't have the budget to do this. I'll pay somebody else to solve the problem, right? That's, that's just great economics, right? That's specialization at work. But in my head, I was like, fuck that. I don't trust those people, right? Because isn't the notion of centralizing custody part of what leads to these bad outcomes? Like, you know, Mt. Gox and Bifinex and all these things. So I, I kind of just convinced myself, dude, I have another option. Multi-sig exists. 
we were already using multi-sig internally at Unchained. We had all the keys and we were just using an internal multi-sig quorum, like most custodians uh, who do custody will have something like that internally to their systems. And I realized we should just share the keys. If I just spread the keys out, like between me and all the customers, then I'll have keys around the planet. And to attack the Bitcoin, you have to hack me and 10,000 separate customers. That's not going to work. Like you'll just hack somebody else. And so I started to think to myself, like, okay, I got to do this. Like, and it's because at this point, then I can live in a world where Unchained's private key, like the loss of that private key does not mean the loss of Bitcoin. Now, obviously that Unchained, we have never lost our private key. We've never been hacked in that way. I never intend to be, it'll be a huge pain in my ass if that happens. But if it happens, it's not the end of Bitcoin. And that was very important to me. I, I, I had to live in that world. Otherwise I couldn't go to bed at night. Good choice. So so how KYC does this, like how much KYC? Yeah. Oh, very, very. We are a U.S. financial institution. We are regulated. So we know who our customers are. So you need are. follow, follow we, suit there. We, we, yeah, we do. And, and now to be fair, we're not zealots about it. I think we collect the minimum data that we need in order to legally and safely like be able to offer our financial products. I'll also go further and say though, part of what I've realized is even without KYC, right? As a regulation, as a practice, I completely endorse it. I need to know who my customer is. I'm in collaborative custody with them. They're going to ask oh, yeah. me to sign a transaction. I need to be able to verify their identity. So there's this notion of like of privacy versus anonymity, you know? And I think I'm like, Unchained lives in a world where we cannot offer you anonymity. One, because of regulations and compliance reasons. Two, because we must know who you are in the real world so that we can verify your identity. We're constantly under attack. And our clients are constantly under attack. And the fact that we know what they look like, that we can reach out to them in the real world, that we can use non-application you know, web-based channels to, to have that conversation is really important to serving them well. I wish that there was no government connection to this. I wish that only, only we needed to know. We never would be in a position to have to share that information ever. But as a regulated financial institution, like we have to comply with subpoenas, like, like we have to do other things. So it's like, I take a little bit more of a nuanced view that us knowing who our customers are is really, really valuable and important and it helps protect them. And so when you work with Unchained, you are saying, I am okay losing anonymity, but I still demand privacy. And so we work incredibly hard <clears throat> to make sure that we don't leak customer data, right? We build a lot of things in-house when we use third-party services, we minimize absolutely the amount of data that's going to those systems. We've been largely successful, if not perfectly successful in our business's history at, at accomplishing this. It's a, it's a very much a trade-off. Now, with that said, I think there's a huge space for anonymous versions of collaborative custody and eventually anonymous financial services as well. Um, it's just harder to build those things. And I think where I'm sitting, like we're building the thing that I think comes first. You know, like I love like the, the BISC guys and like a lot of the other approaches to be able to do exactly, man, that stuff is great. And I think it has to grow, but, but I also live in the United States. I'm building a business in the United States. My investors, employees live in the United States. I'm trying to be, I'm trying to build a thing that makes sense here. And then you're building a bridge, aren't you? Yeah, very much like, and, and bridges, bridges are, were thematically all over our website for the first three years of our existence. Cause we saw that too. We're like, we need to figure out, like, it's going to take time for us to make Bitcoin replace the internet and like the impossible to be surveilled. And like, that's going to take a couple of decades, like, and between here and there, dollars are still going to exist and be important. So like, let's be the bridge. 
that like allows Bitcoin to be more useful to like gives Bitcoiners more options. And then eventually, hopefully we ourselves are putting certain product lines out of business. You know, in 30 years, if Unchained is around, are we still doing US dollar loans? Like, I hope not, you know, <laughs> like I, ho- I hope yeah, no one yeah. wants those loans. I hope the dollars doesn't exist anymore by then. So, <laughs> so there's a certain sense in which I, I understand that like there's a now and then there's a later and I'm trying to build for now, but still in a, in a way that is principled. I don't want to make short-term decisions. For example, well, eventually people want to have their own keys, but right now it's hard to screw it. I'll just have all the Bitcoin. I'll be hypothecated and I'll do whatever. Like that's, that's not right. Um, so I don't know, a little bit of nuance, I guess. So as a specific question about the KYC process, like is, is the Bitcoin public address do the do like regulators ever ask for that, or is it just like this person bought Bitcoin for these ma- this many dollars, or does it ever include the actual Bitcoin address and and uh, the amount of Bitcoins? You're starting to <clears throat> ask questions that are at the boundary of what I actually literally know um, about the business. But in general, they're not so interested in the addresses and stuff. Like they don't think of the world that way. You know what I mean? Like in in some cases. For example, if we've had like an attacker, like, like attack one of our clients and we've had to therefore file a suspicious activity report, like we may like, want to include certain information in that situation. We may want to report certain address information to law enforcement, right? In the cases where we've had clients who are being attacked and in the physical world, and like there's all sorts of, you know, as a bank, we wind up in that situation. But in general, no, I, we, we seldom get like requests to be like, hey, I need the addresses of these people. That's just not a thing that gets, gets asked for, right? Yeah, the, the, the reason I ask is because I've, I've heard the same story from a lot of companies in a lot of countries that like uh, the KYC thing is one thing, but it's always o- only on the fiat side, really. And the Bitcoin side, uh, the people who make these laws and the people who are supposed to look into the they know nothing about this stuff. So it's, 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 it's hard for them to... And, and ironically, the, the fiat side almost solves itself sometimes because like we're not required to do AML stuff like when we get a deposit of dollars coming in because it's coming from a U.S. bank and the assumption is, oh, it's already in the network and therefore like they're doing that work and whatever else, like there are like the requirements can be a little bit more onerous on the Bitcoin side, but at the same time, like, because like, what are they supposed to say? Like, there's no requirement that we must chain analysis, everything like that's not a real law. You know, they might say, for example, for a lending against Bitcoin collateral, they might say, well, you need to know where the Bitcoin came from. Like, where did this person get the Bitcoin from? So we'll ask them, where'd you get it from? They'll say, I bought it in 2017 and we'll say, great requirement met you know like the thing i i i hope will happen in the future is that more and more people writing laws uh, and thinking about laws and and uh, regulations uh that you know ownership of a bitcoin is so different from ownership of anything else because it's just keeping a secret and there's no way to tell if someone else also has that secret so there's there's really no way to tell who used a bitcoin because what does using a Bitcoin even mean? Like you move a number in a database that is shared by everyone and there's a likelihood that someone else knew the secret. Like there's like no real connection. The, the, the connection to the number is so personal. So, so it makes all of these legalities, if you will, very strange. They feel outdated somehow. It's, it's, it's like intellectual property that like, it doesn't really work. <laughs> then again, we we still live in a world where we have to follow rules. But but I I hope that more and more people will start thinking about these things. 
I mean, it's a process. And I, I'm unfortunately, I don't know that Bitcoin companies have done the best, have the best track record in educating legislators yet. You know, I think the shitcoin land spends a lot of time and money because maybe they have money to burn on lobbying and whatnot. Like, <clears throat> we're not, we're less successful. I think there's concepts like custodian, like what does it mean to be a custodian when there's multiple keys and multiple parties? Like who is the custodian now? Like what is, what do you, what do you even mean anymore? Like that's not possible. You can't have dollars in a multi-sig arrangement. You can't put real estate in a multi-sig arrangement, altcoins for real estate, notwithstanding. It's like some of those ideas really need to be rethought, you know, like. Yeah. And unhosted wallet, what, what the EU is calling <laughs> it now. What a strange like, what expression. Is that? What even is that? Like, so, uh, so it's forbidden to remember 12 words now? Mm-hmm. Because that's an unhosted wallet, right? If I if I say the word bacon twelve mm-hmm. times, I'm yeah. I'm a criminal. Like no, no, if I, I if it. I remember the word bacon twelve times, I'm a criminal because that's a valid Bitcoin address. And, and and I definitely believe that. Like, however, you might you want to give people as much credit as you can, and you might say that their intentions were good in the sense of wanting to prevent bad behavior that is destructive to society, but the implementation of centralized businesses tracking everything about each person, never, that's not a good solution. Like that just causes more problems. It causes the centralization of consumer data, which inevitably leaks and causes problems for every single person that had to participate in that process. It slows down my business, makes me implement and or use services I don't want to use and I think are dangerous. It's an anti-pattern. And I'd like, I just think it, it would be much healthier if there was a different philosophy here in place about how to try to affect the same outcome. Nobody wants terrorists' lives to be easier because of Bitcoin, but the solution is not make everyone's lives impoverished and worse by having it all be tracked by some government agency or whatever it is, right? Like whatever you think the problem is, don't solution a worse problem, (laughs) right? (laughs) Then, then, Then again, if people's lives were easier, they might not want to be terrorists as much. So like it's no, that's this yeah, uh, totally the uh, road to hell is paved with good intentions. Yes, thing, yes, very uh, much, going on. very much, yeah. very much. So how are you enjoying this episode so far? Before we dive back in, first a little bit about our sponsors. First up, Wasabi Wallet, the privacy by default, open source, non-custodial Bitcoin wallet with CoinJoin built in. It's the easy to use, comprehensive, affordable way to make your coins private. And the best part is they've been making huge improvements to the app. They're really focusing on the user experience, adding advanced features for power users. They just keep getting better. You send your coins to your Wasabi wallet and they get combined with loads of other coins using the Wabi Sabi protocol. So they're private on the other end. Your tracks are covered so you can work on expanding your freedom footprint without worrying about your privacy. So check out wasabiwallet.io and download Wasabi today. Next up, Orange Bill app the Bitcoin social layer app for iOS and Android, where you can stack friends who stack sats. You can connect with your favorite Bitcoiners on the app, make local connections, and even connect with Bitcoiners around the world. And a big feature on OrangePill app is Vents. You can see what's going on in your area and connect with Bitcoiners around you. I've been to multiple OrangePill app events and they brought Bitcoiners together from all over. The best part is, you know it's high signal. There's no spam on OrangePill app because everyone pays to be there. It's just $3 a month. So download Orange Pill app on Apple or Android and get connected to the Bitcoin social layer. Next up, our new sponsor, The Bitcoin Way. Their mission is to onboard, educate, and remove barriers to taking self-custody of your Bitcoin. They cover everything from cold wallets to nodes, no KYC Bitcoin purchases, inheritance planning, payments, and more. Whether you're new to Bitcoin or you're an experienced Bitcoiner looking to expand your freedom footprint, or you know someone who this sounds perfect for, 
the Bitcoin way has something for you. They have a skilled team, well-versed in the Bitcoin space, and their goal is to make all the complexities of Bitcoin as straightforward as possible for everyone. And the best part is you can get started with a free 30-minute call with their team. Go to thebitcoinway.com contact for more info. All right, back to it. Don't forget to like, subscribe, and brush your teeth. Drew, maybe you can tell tell us a little bit more about, okay, because you've taken the conversation a few different ways here so far, and, and the, a couple of things that were interesting to me before uh, um, this conversation, you covered a lot about the collaborative custody, but maybe kind of from the, the ideas side of it, what do you hope that the, the role of Unchained looks like this 30 years, 50 years into the future and maybe a little bit uh, along the road to there? Have you thought about that? Yeah, I mean, I, I, it, a little bit, I'll give you an answer maybe in two stages or generations. You know, there's, there's what, what I like to accomplish in the shorter term of, of that very long time period. And, and obviously, you know, I would like Brunchain to become a profitable, best-in-class bank and private wealth management business. I think the model that we have is extremely compelling for our clients. I think we give them more control and transparency into their finances than they would ever get from a traditional bank. I mean, consider this. We ourselves make open source software and train our clients on how, if we were to disappear as a business, or even if we're still around for that matter, they can, in a simple transaction, use their own keys to extract all the Bitcoin in our platform, wherever else they need it to go. We work really hard on educating them that like, this is your coin. You're the one responsible. We're helping you, but really you're in charge. And if you don't like us, you don't like what we're doing. We disappear. We fail. We, we try to rug pull you or whatever. Like you can get out on your own, independent of us. And it's such an important point. I think for a lot of clients, they'll never do it, but they just like to know that it's possible. But because it is possible, we're then put in the position of it's very hard for us to like lock in our clients. If we give them bad service or our product degrades or they have a bad experience, like they're 25 minutes away from moving millions of dollars in one Bitcoin transaction out of here back to somewhere else. Right. And in a world like that, like how are we then incentivized? Like what, what, what is the behavior you expect from us as a business that seeks to like grow in our revenues? We work really hard to retain those clients. We have incredible customer service. You call us, you get a human being on the phone. We have to work hard to keep those deposits in our system. And I love that. I love that for us because it makes us a better business. It makes us what I wish banking were, which is value-added custodianship and, and help and financial services. Not, I just got a mortgage recently for a new home. It was a disaster. It was a terrible experience. I was treated like chattel by the bank. Um, I was prodded and asked for questions and they weren't listening to me and they don't understand my business and they don't treat me as a human being. I didn't even get a good deal out of it. And I wish that Unchained gave mortgages because I know I would have gotten a better deal. I, they would have recognized my Bitcoin wealth a little bit more, right? Like I would have not felt like such a commodified human being. Sorry for interrupting. Uh, but then it feels like banks have been becoming worse and worse the, these last couple of years. That's, a, that's something really crucial has shifted when they can, you know, just shut off accounts and maybe they could that all along, but they've been doing it for real. Like, and it's, it's pretty scary what the, what they're capable of. Yeah. And I would like to operate a bank that has a different calculus for what they think that they are. Like banks are all about, let us get as many of your assets in place and let us rehypothecate them. There's this question, but how does the rehypothecation of a depositor's assets help the depositor? Yeah, exactly. I, like I, I have examples from uh, from my own life. I tried to withdraw 
a quite a large amount of cash uh, a while back. <laughs> That's suspicious, man. What are you doing yeah, with that the, money? Wh- what's the cash for? <laughs> yeah. None of your business is my money, isn't it? But no, they need to know. Yeah, no, it's and and, and it's like we're trying to work in a different mentality, which is instead of our revenue model being like, we give you everything for free, we take all your money and then we expose it to risk um, and we don't even tell you about it and you have no transparency into what's happening. And then we hassle you as you try to take money out of the system. We want to invert a lot of that. What if you just pay us directly for the value that we provide to you? And then what if we give you freedom and control to walk away at any time and stop paying us? Like, this is a better set of incentives for us to operate under. Like, it aligns our interests with our clients and the reason banks can't operate this way is because the banking industry is, is predicated upon the notion of rehypothecation. That's how banking works, man. And every time we go to traditional organizations, they look at our business and they're like, I don't know why you don't just rehypothecate this stuff. Doesn't make a lot of sense to me. You guys would be making more money in the short term if you did that. And my answer is always like, yeah, but that's not, that is not, I don't think what banking is in the Bitcoin world. And I don't want to build some hybrid yahoo.com. Uh, I, I want to build like the real thing, right? And I think that requires having some courage and putting some constraints in place and risking short-term revenue in order to build something really sticky. And I am proud to say, I think what we've built is incredibly sticky. Like unchained clients do, do not leave. Like we have incredibly low churn. Where are they going to go? Who has a better set of incentives to serve them and who has a better product? So, uh, yeah. So what differs you from other uh, similar services such as Casa, for instance? What? So I'll first say like, it, it can be tempting if you're an entrepreneur to hate the businesses that are closest to you. Yeah, yeah. I, I mean, I, I don't want you to talk shit about Casa. No, I, just- I, no, my point is that I never would because that's not the way that I approach my work. I hate when this Bitcoin wallet has beef with this Bitcoin wallet. I'm like, you guys are idiots. Like, you're in the same industry. You need to support each other. You should be fighting altcoins and apathy. Like, those are the biggest competitors. And what I, I always will say, if you're not going to use Unchained, please use Casa. Like, they have an incredibly good product. Like, I love their team. I've learned so much from Jameson in time. It's like, I, I think my product is better. That's why I work here. And that's why I built this. I think the fact that we bundle financial services and lending and buying Bitcoin and inheritance, and this just makes our product and our platform more valuable. I think we're going to grow faster as a business as a result of those real understandings of what Bitcoin is and where the value comes from. I think ultimately custody is going to be commodified and a lot of people are going to offer multi-sig collaborative custody. And that's a good thing, not a bad thing. I'm excited about that. That creates more options for consumers in the marketplace. So in general, I like to believe that it's us and Casa and other Bitcoin-oriented companies against everyone else who doesn't get it yet. But I do think there are things that distinguish Unchained above those businesses at the same time. I'm very happy to hear this because this is this is a thing that we, uh, me and Luke talk about a lot and, and uh, with our guests on the pod as well, because we strongly believe that a Bitcoin company is a Bitcoin is a company who realizes that we're all incentivized to collaborate. So, so free market competition is a different thing on a Bitcoin standard. In the fiat world, you fight each other, and, and you whoever provides the best, well, you engage in catalactic competition is the correct term. So, whatever whoever can make the best product to the cheapest price is supposed to win. But in Bitcoin, it's even better than that because like Bitcoiners are incentivized to help other Bitcoiners succeed because when we do, we help Bitcoin succeed. So we all, we're all incentivized to help one another. And so, so to, to me, that is very reassuring to hear that you want Casa to succeed because that's, that's what I want to hear from Bitcoin companies because we should want our competitors to succeed because this thing is 
is not about us. It's about yeah. us. You know, <laughs> and I, I still want to, I still want to win. I still want to be the best Bitcoin company, et cetera, et cetera. Like, of course, but truthfully, I, I, I don't want it to be just me that wins. I want there to be real competitors out there because they make me better. Like it is easy to get lazy and to take for granted the service you provide to your users if you're the only place they can get it from. If you know that there's another competitor that actually has a really pretty good product, it forces you to always be your best. And, and frankly, I have had so many competitors that are so terrible. They're liars. They're frauds. They're people that I think their product is toxic and it hurts people and they use it. I welcome competitors who I actually respect, who I think produce good product and actually care about their clients. I, I want more of those. And every time a new player enters the arena that I think has good intentions and has the same worldview and vision that I have and is trying to build a good product, like I'm just happy. That's good. That's good for consumers. I'm, I'm a consumer. I mean, I feel like on some level, like I'm not sure. I think I, th I think I might think of myself as like just a person first. Like when I when I approach my business, because like I am a client of my business, as are so many of my friends and family. And it's very hard for me to make decisions that are like good for my business, but like bad for me as a client and bad for my parents or my family and friends. Like it's doesn't, it's hard to behave that way. Right. Like, I don't know. But do you think, uh, like, do you agree with the, uh, that companies that are run by actual Bitcoiners have a different approach to free market competition than, than, you know, Bitcoin companies run by fiat minded people? Because I, th I see a difference there where, where the fiat minded people just want to, you know, shut the competition out and, and fight the competition in a way that Bitcoiners, true Bitcoiners at heart, they, they, they don't do that in the same we're, way. We're, we're caught in the no true Scotsman fallacy are almost here, right? Because there are many examples of people who ostensibly are Bitcoiners and operate Bitcoin companies who behave like assets all the time and are I wouldn't not call them Bitcoiners though. Exactly, right? So, <laughs> so then when you say, well, you've lost the mantle, like because of your behavior. And like, yeah. So like to a degree, I do agree with you. But at the same time, like I think there are examples of people who like, Maybe they talk the talk, but they haven't really got it, right? They haven't understood that, that, like, okay, fine, I understand you compete with that business, but they're such a great business. Like, focus your negative attentions on some other problem, right? It's like, <laughs> but that's what what I view as a fiat mind. Like, they're in it for the fiat gains and not for the not for the Bitcoin. So they're in it for the short term gains rather than the generational wealth. If and building building something robust for generations to come. <sighs> They're acting like a Bitcoiner superficially, but they kind of caught in a fiat mindset, perhaps. Yeah, exactly. Yes, there was one other thing that I thought of. before this interview. I stumbled on a video on your on your Twitter page, the from Bitblock Boom, where you talk about the and I, I had to retweet it because I thought it was an amazing uh, explanation of Nakamoto consensus. Yep. Do you remember what you said there? Yes, yes. <laughs> Can yes, you give yeah. us the the TLDR here because uh, I I just loved it and. I, I love every good framing of, of whatever Satoshi stumbled upon. Yeah, for sure. No, I feel the same way. I feel like uh, there's room for a lot of people's books to, and attitudes and explanations because there's, it's such a rich idea. So I'm like you, every time someone says like, here's another way to look at why that's valuable. I'm like, yes, write that down. That's great. Um, so that was my attempt perhaps at, for myself, like coming up with how I was feeling at the time after having done a, a sort of last year or so, I've been doing a lot of reading and research on like the white paper and the references it contains and kind of doing that proof of work for myself like that i hadn't really ever done before like at that level of depth um because i've been trying to write a little bit more of a historical piece and also a future looking piece on kind of these ideas around markets and incentives and it forced me to want to like really check my work so in so doing i kind of like 
it changed the way I was actually thinking about what was innovative, um, about what Satoshi accomplished. Because I think I didn't realize until I did this work, like how much of Bitcoin had already been conceived of by many other uh, thinkers in the space, like Nick Sabo and Wei Dai and a bunch of other players, like so many of the ideas, including things like a blockchain or proof of work to create money supply or chains of public key signatures as a way of to, to think about transactions, like all these ideas are like old and existed for in fact a decade or more. And so I kind of found myself being like, well, what did Satoshi do that was new and unique? And for a while, I, I assumed that it was the difficulty adjustment because that's a very sexy, cool, new idea in Bitcoin. But after this work, I kind of came to the conclusion that even the difficulty adjustment is actually the consequence of, a, of, of an earlier thing that Satoshi brought to Bitcoin. And I was able to put it, when it sort of hit me, like, oh, obviously this is the thing. Like Satoshi is the first person or entity or group. I, I always force myself to like try to remember we don't know who they are. Satoshi is the first time that someone brought the, a monetary policy into a digital currency. That B-Money and BitGold and a bunch of these projects that existed in the past, like they had made all these links between money and proof of work and all these nice notions, but anybody could create money. There was no rule to prevent that from happening. You, if you did the work, you could create the money. And I think what's remarkable is Satoshi decided, I don't like, I want there to be a finite supply of money. That was a, that was a monetary goal. Many people, I think, saw the value of a digital currency, like to solve problems of censorship or, you know, transaction utility or whatever, like those ideas were there, right? And I, I think there was a thread of stronger monetary policy throughout some of that, but it was a little bit more focused on the cypherpunk ethos of like freedom and uncensorability. Satoshi was the first to really bring, no, there has to be strong monetary policy. And my claim is, I'm not making an Austrian claim about economics. I'm not saying that Bitcoin won because of its strong monetary policy and finite supply for economic reasons. That might be true. I, I'm not debating that point. That I, I think that is true. I'm making a stronger claim, which is the, literally the technical underpinning. Like, how do you get the code to do the thing, right? Like, once you decide, I want there to be a finite money supply, everything else falls out of that. And it's my claim that if you were to be given B money, like the, the proposal that was created by Wei Dai for how to have an auction for the creation of B money, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, in which anybody can create the money supplies. If you, if I gave you that paper and I said, Hey, take this idea of Wei Dai's and eliminate the freedom of users to create money, make the money created on this fixed schedule because I want it to be that way. If, if I gave you that goal, I think you would invent Bitcoin. And I think that was like the path that Satoshi took. And B money is the first reference in the white paper and Bitcoin is be money with the freedom for users to create money eliminated. That's my one-liner about what I, what I now think. And in that clip that you posted, I made the claim that it turns out that you get Nakamoto consensus and double spend protection and all these magical things, like they just fall out of the code as soon as you decide you want this monetary goal. And that's the reason that it was Satoshi, this weird cypherpunk guy who thought about money, who came up with Nakamoto consensus and made that breakthrough. And it wasn't a computer scientist working at the cutting edge of distributed systems theory, because that person's goal, they didn't, they weren't thinking about monetary policy. Even if they knew about B-Money and they thought about Byzantine problems, like they wouldn't have made this, this leap. It was Satoshi's like first desire for a monetary policy goal that then became the essential technical simplification that caused everything else to show up. That's, that's my claim. Yeah. And that's so cool. And it's all because of this internal limits uh, of the thing that makes like the, the longest chain actually be the most valuable chain. <laughs> uh, it's beautiful. So to that point, was Bitcoin the first cryptocurrency 
or is it the last cryptocurrency? Mm, both. Why not? I would say it's more of the last than the first, but okay. Uh, is it a, an invention or a discovery then? Oh, definitely a discovery. Yes, we agree 100% on that as well then. <laughs> like, I think I've written about that. I think fucking aliens have Bitcoin and it works the same way. Maybe they don't have, they have, they have a different SHA, you know, or hashing algorithm. Maybe it's a different, you know, total supply curve. Who cares? That, those are details. But I think the idea that you build a market that has proof of work to, uh, to record, you know, in a, in a, in a, in a uh, append only log, like the transactions of a society in a way that solves these coordination problems is a discovery. It's like discovering fusion. It's like discovering, you know, DNA. It's like, it's like part of the world around us. And we, we, we discovered it. Okay. So friendly aliens come to our planet, you know, like the aliens in boxes in Mexico, they were probably friendly. They look friendly. They come here and they have their own version of Bitcoin called Bitcoin or something. And they're their chain is longer than ours. More proof of work. What do we do? What money wins? Theirs or ours? Would we, would we exchange it for theirs? I mean, I've written a huge amount about this. I've, I've thought about this question way too much. I think for a person who lives in an era where humanity can barely make it off the planet, like I've thought about this too much. It's quite an unlikely scenario. Yes. <laughs> yes. Uh, I would say it depends, right? Like, so a conclusion I also came to in, in those ponderings, which I, if you Google Bitcoin astronomy, you will find a whole ridiculous series. I, I think there's two ideas to play with. One is that like blockchains like Bitcoin can exist or monetary systems, if you like, or whatever, they can exist at separate points in space. And that is kind of a stable concept that like, <clears throat> there's no reason to build another Bitcoin blockchain here on earth, like for your special reason, like it makes no sense. But if you go very, very far away, like there are challenges in using Bitcoin or mining Bitcoin specifically if you go very, very far away. So it actually may make sense if you get, you know, light minutes or light years away from Earth. Like, yeah, you're going to need to build your own money. Okay, I get that. That makes sense. And then there's the second idea of, well, actually, even in the same place, it can kind of make sense, I think, to have a second kind of money, but one that is like much larger. So instead of having a block time of like 10 minutes like Bitcoin has, which is kind of good for a planetary scale currency, what if you had a block time of 30 days? Now suddenly the scope or scale and energy budget and concerns and time scale of this currency starts to look a little bit different. It's not very practical anymore for human economy of today, like on a planet, but maybe it is perfect for a solar system wide economy where, you know, transactions typically take centuries to confirm. And that's okay because that's about how long it takes to deliver a gigaton of carbon, like around the solar system. So. There's these two ideas of chains that can exist simultaneously that are far away, but also larger. So coming back to your question, they show up and they have more hash rate than us. Well, I guess it would depend which kind of blockchain we're talking about. Is it their home planet's blockchain, which is infinitely far away from us and has higher hash rate? Okay, we don't give a shit. They're here on Bitcoin land. Now they're playing by our rules because hash rate is suppressed exponentially as you get further away. That's like one of the first results that I share in that series. Conversely, if their blockchain is a galactic blockchain or some ridiculous idea, and we're actually inside of it right now. And we didn't realize that at a higher hash rate than we do. Well, then, yeah, you're going to start to expect to see our guys starting to mine that, you know, parent chain that we're sitting inside of. I absolutely love that answer because like that's uh, one of the concepts that the people don't think about is the hash horizon. And for instance, Bitcoin could not work on Mars and therefore they would need their own their own blockchain. And that can't function because they're basically creating a shitcoin. 
So the, the way I put it in one of the books was the one shot principle, like the, maybe we heard it, absolute mathematical scarcity achieved by consensus in a sufficiently decentralized distributed network was a discovery rather than an invention. It cannot be achieved again by a network made up of participants aware of this discovery, since the very thing discovered was resistance to replicability itself. So in my mind, the, it's the awareness of the original thing that prevents it from happening again. Because all of the, all of the people aware of Bitcoin have insider information as to how, how this would play out. So that's why it can't play out again. That's the immaculate conception and, and everything in Bitcoin plays it. Like it's, if, if you take a shower and use a towel, you get one result. You get dry. If you use the towel first and take a shower afterwards, you get a different result. So like the, the, the chain of events that actually played out play a huge part in Bitcoin. And we don't know if it would have existed at all if we just changed the tiniest parameter. So, so in my mind, it's just like the universe and the constants of the universe. We don't know if we destroy the entire thing, if, if, if the model have been just, just like in a infinitesimally small digit of pi or something. If that was changed, there might not have been a universe at all. And I think the same is true for, for Bitcoin that if one of the parameters, if it was, the target was 12 minutes between blocks. The whole thing might might have fallen apart. Yeah. And, yeah. and if Satoshi hadn't waited for the second miner to come online for two, two weeks before he started mining, it might not have worked at all. We, we don't know any of these things. We, all we know is that it works now and we can observe it. And uh, uh, yeah, and that's why it's so insanely fascinating. But, the, but, but I, think, I, I think also there's this notion of like, we're so early that we barely understand it. You know, I think like wait, wait, 300 years from now and Bitcoin has been ascendant for centuries and everyone assumes this is how it always worked. It's so fucking obvious that Bitcoin, da, 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 da. Like, I think our level of understanding of all of this will be higher, right? To the point where potentially we will have an engineering discipline of like, okay, how do you launch a completely market-driven, decentralized system to solve a problem? Like you follow this methodology. Right, it's just engineering at that and point. In in uh, in in our grandchildren's minds, we us three here in this conversation will be drooling idiots. Like yes, <laughs> yes, exactly. Uh, yeah, so, uh, <laughs> there's no way around that. So so I I hope it at least has entertainment value to them, so they can laugh at us. Uh, <laughs> but but the thing about the awareness, if we go back to the alien thing, uh, that's why I think you couldn't really bootstrap a galactic blockchain after you found it for your own planet. And you probably couldn't build a galactic civilization before you found it on your planet, right? So it might not work at all on a galactic scale. I, I, who knows, man? Who has any idea? I think in my, in my suppositions, what I, what I took to be a path was like, we would, through this engineering discipline, like if there are problems that that thing solves that we couldn't solve with Bitcoin because Bitcoin is inherently finite and a certain size and built for a certain scale, which is to say the scale of planet earth, um, maybe it solves a problem and then maybe we would build it. And so I spent a lot of time trying to justify to myself <clears throat> why, if you're sufficiently far away, you struggle to use Bitcoin and therefore you have a real problem that you can solve by replicating a new version of Bitcoin. And to me, this is, this is a fun experiment that worked because when I first had these ideas and I was like tossing them around to my, you know, my Bitcoin maxi colleagues. They're like, fuck you, dude, you shitcoiner. Like, what are you talking about? Like, but then it took a little while to say, well, no, there's one, there's one difference, which is I'm talking about doing this so far away that 
like that's a meaningful new idea, right? That like, it's not like, it's not like, oh, Bitcoin is imperfect in this one tiny way. I want to change this one thing about it. And that's why I'm going to succeed. It's like, that's not, that's never going to work. No, right? no. Like, but that, but uh, that is the awareness part. That is the awareness because it has to be far, far away enough for, for there to not be an awareness about it. Like, uh, so, so that's part of the hash horizon in that sense, in my mind. Uh, and, uh, why, why it can't be. I, I, this is one of those abstract concepts that I j simply just love because it's so bizarre and yet so fun to think about. It's one of it, those it, it was a nuggets. fun argument. That we, I think we did a poll with like, you know, if you were to live on Mars, would you prefer, wait, would you join the, the Mars new coin revolution? Like, yeah, whatever. Like, would you, I think I called it Musk quite which I'm, I'm unhappy about now, but whatever. Um, it's like, would you be a Bitcoin like Tory or would you go support Muscoin and be a revolutionary? That was the, that was the question we asked. And it was fun, man. People argued about it for a while because it's interesting, right? Like you, you feel like a shitcoiner saying, well, no, I wouldn't want to use Bitcoin in that situation, but it's an interesting, I think, litmus test of. Are you the kind of person that believes Bitcoin is the solution to literally the entire universe's needs to exchange economic value? Or do you accept that there actually may be some limitations potentially? It's an interesting question. But the thing, the answer I would give to that is like, I wouldn't use Bitcoin because I couldn't trust it because I couldn't verify it, blah, blah, blah. Uh, but I definitely wouldn't use fucking Musk coin or any other, <laughs> any other shit coin, even if it was newly minted and created on Mars, because Everyone on Mars using that cryptocurrency, for lack of a better word, a cryptocurrency, would be aware <laughs> of Bitcoin and therefore they would have insider information and there would be a mining cabal and everything would be fucked from the from the get go, probably. Yeah, it's it's a fun it's a fun thing to hypothesize over. <laughs> yes. We have to continue that conversation at one point. Luke, do you have any final questions for Drew? Because I think this is a good end point. <laughs> Sure. Well, then I won't take us down any completely new rabbit holes. Uh, do you see any threats to Bitcoin? And, and I'm talking long term because we take the philosophical long view here. Do you see anything that would, would prevent Bitcoin from fulfilling its mission? Yeah, I mean, I see, I, I think there's always a worry due to the nature of computing and so on. It's really hard to eradicate this worry, but there is some sort of weird ass bug somewhere in Bitcoin. Like this is something I've always worried about, right? And I think the more time that passes, the less likely that is. In 2013, like there, we know now there, there were bugs in Bitcoin and we, re we removed some of them, right? Um, and that's good. As time goes on, I think that's less and less likely, but it's always sort of present. And it's always one of those like, I bet there will be science fiction movies in like 30, 40 years. Like a flaw was discovered in Bitcoin. Oh my God. Like now it's, it's an interesting, fun thing to play with. But I don't actually assign that a high degree of likelihood. It would be catastrophic, but, but low likelihood. I think, um, and this next one I answer in two parts. I think things like quantum computing, they're not an existential threat to Bitcoin itself, but they're a change that Bitcoin will have to adapt to in some meaningful way. And it's hard to change Bitcoin. Like where anytime anybody talks about, hey, I want to make this change in Bitcoin or whatever else, like it's very hard to get through that discussion. And I think that's a good thing. I don't think it should be easy to get through that discussion. But I also, as much as I might believe in ossification on some timeline, it's not today or yesterday that we've also like, we still need to make some changes. And I'm not the expert, I'm not expert enough to say exactly which ones, but I do know that some things will need to change. Um, hopefully minor, like smaller and smaller and smaller things over time. There's a concept of Kelvin numbering, which I think informs a lot of my thinking on, on this topic. Um, but with that said, it's like, okay, how does Bitcoin adapt to the sudden creation of real quantum computers, which are, are 
totally happening. I think there's a lot of Bitcoiners who have their head in the sand about this and refuse to accept that it's a real thing because they don't like the consequences, which is we have to then come up with decisions about what we're going to do. We could do nothing and let Satoshi's P2PK coins be a giant bounty for the world's first quantum computer. That is an option. That is, in fact, what's going to happen if we take no action. Totally fine. And then now transactions are are um, potentially stealable by quantum computers while they've been broadcast because we've broken the hash open and now public key cryptography can be changed. Like we have to move to some post-quantum uh, public key encryption scheme if we really want to be have strengths against resisting quantum computations. Frankly, I think Bitcoiners will be the ones to like actually promote things like lattice computations or other current like post-quantum algorithms that are not in widespread usage. Because truthfully, there's not a lot to be gained from actually building quantum resistant anything today because quantum computers aren't that powerful and no one gives a shit. Credit cards have like 30% fraud all the time anyway. So I think it's actually Bitcoiners who are going to solve this post-quantum computing by problem because we have the most to lose. But it is something we're going to have to solve. And you think about, okay, again, how do we make changes in Bitcoin? We're not good at it. And that's probably a good thing that we're not good at it. Like these are some of the things I worry about. I don't, again, I don't think this is an existential problem. I think we will figure this out because we will have to figure it out. And we're good at solving problems when we have to as a community. Like it sort of creates that pressure to just figure it out and get it done. So those are modest worries. I, it's hard for me to really think of something that is like an existential risk to Bitcoin that I don't think the community has already thought, talked about or thought about or has some kinds of plans. And even it's like, oh, the government's going to fight. It's like, they're not. They might try a little bit, but like the government is just people, man. They own Bitcoin, some of them, like, and more of them every day. So I, I don't tend not to worry about those kinds of failure modes very much. Like to me, there's a habit. It's not like a, it's not like, it's like, it's like a struggle. Let's put it that way. Like I, I, I don't, I'm not claiming that there's some like existential problem that we need to worry about that like causes Bitcoin as a project not to succeed. I am articulating that there will be some monstrous struggles still in front of us as a community before we're going, before we're going to, before Bitcoin can be the thing that we need it to be at a global scale, et cetera, et cetera. So, uh, but, but with the quantum computing thing, uh, that attack vector, uh, the way I see that like in Bitcoin, at least we have 10 minutes to fix the problem. But the traditional banking sector, it's just fuck. No, they're, they're screwed. They're screwed. They're screwed. <laughs> so, yeah. so we have, if, if it happens anytime soon, the world has way bigger problems than Bitcoin to worry about at that point, because everything, everything is fucked. Like, well, yeah, yeah, it, I totally, totally agree with that. But I would also put it oppositely. I would say, yeah, whoever has quantum computers and seeks to behave adversarially will come for Bitcoin first, even though other things might be easier to attack. Bitcoin is more valuable. Well, not, not, not if it's not quantum resistant though. So, so it's sort of a, a catch 22 because if it's sort of why like miners can't act in their own self-interest because it, it's like alchemy. If, if alchemists have had been successful and found a cheap way to produce no gold, which in way, in a way central bankers did, they destroyed the value of gold. So the, and the central bank has destroyed the value of the fiat currency. This, this idea might be hard to follow, but if you can cheat the rules in Bitcoin, you destroy its value because it's not valuable anymore if someone can hack it, right? Then it, it would instantly drop to zero. So you would have to pull it off without revealing that you pulled it off. No, I think it's a little bit more complex, right? Because there's a timeline there. Like, I think there's an attacker in the future who values Bitcoin, who understands that Bitcoiners are working on solutions for post-quantum computing but they've underestimated the rate of progress and this person can steal some Bitcoin, they're going to do it. 
And even if it causes a market crash, they might have confidence that eventually Bitcoin will figure out post-quantum shit or, or take the post-quantum forks that are brewing or conversations and make those real. And I can make a little bit of money here in the middle, right? Yeah, but what I'm saying is that they couldn't steal very much because if they if they stole like a million coins, then 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 everyone would abandon ship. Like well, this can't. Let's pause I in general agree, right, that they wouldn't do that. But then the question to me is, what about Satoshi's P 2 PK coins? Like they're just sitting there. Oh yeah, 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 yeah. They, they, they would probably go for those first. But oh, so here's here's an interesting follow up question: Is there a a game theoretical way to figure out what the what the amount of coins they could actually steal without destroying the value is like is there like could they steal a hundred coins is it zero point one coins it's a, is it a million coins well it depends I, I I guess it's all subjective and bitcoiners would react differently to it some some would abandon ship others would would say no nah, I still believe in Bitcoin. If so they target someone who won't notice, if if they if they steal from someone who won't notice for a while, then no. But maybe other people might scenario. notice. Like, is that there are a lot of people monitoring the blockchain, and if they see something odd, they they may notice. Well, that's why you don't steal Satoshi's keys, though. If you steal, if you if you steal Satoshi's coins, right? Everyone knows who those are. But if you just steal some random's coin, yeah. But that's sort of my point. In in that case, it would have to be a small amount. <laughs> Yeah. Because the, well, the further into the million, yeah. Yeah, yeah. The, the further you get into Bitcoin's history, the smaller the amounts become, inevitably. But I think but that's that's kind of what worries me about this whole scenario is because say we as a community do nothing, eventually someone will have quantum computers powerful enough to steal Satoshi's P2PK coins. And I don't trust that no one will do it because it would ruin the value of the thing that they stole. I think people are, like to poke buttons and break things. And we, we need to understand as community, like what, what are we prepared to do in this situation? I think the most conservative and minimal thing is do nothing, let them steal the coins, let it happen. We don't care. Isn't the, the, uh, denial of the SegWit 2X hard fork a proof against that, that people do not break things if they stand to lose a lot of money from it? Sort of, except because hard fork is a thing that the whole community has to do, right? Issuing one transaction to steal a bunch of UTXOs into your own wallet is something one person can do if they have a quantum computer. Now, maybe the argument is that no, no one person will have that quantum computer, but eventually someone will, right? If we change absolutely nothing and quantum computing keeps accelerating and qubits become cheaper and cheaper, someone will eventually have that ability. And the, that actor might not even be aware of the risk of destroying the value of Bitcoin in the process. This might not give a shit. Right. Like I, who knows? Right. Like, and so part of me is like, I don't know what the right answer is on some level. I would like to live in a world where it was easy to do something akin to, okay, look, where as of this date, you have one year or this many blocks, you have 200,000 blocks to get rid of your P2PK outputs. And as of this date, they will no longer be real outputs or like, we'll have some philosophy around it, but that's, that's a change. And that's, I think, I think that's a hard for that's backwards incompatible. So it would be incredibly controversial to do something like that. And I'm not necessarily proposing that we do that. I'm just pointing out that would be one strategy to avoid this pool of P2PK coins just sitting there waiting for a quantum computer. Um, but at the same time, what an incredibly hard conversation that will be, right? Is to tell all the Bitcoin owners of the world, hey, you can no longer use this script type that has been in existence since the very beginning. You must now do this other thing. And in fact, existing coins on the chain like Satoshi's that are unlikely to move will be dealt with somehow. Those UTXOs will be dealt with in some way that I don't know. Like that's a very hard conversation to even begin to have. No one wants to have that conversation. 
I'm not very technical, but but hear me out. Like, uh, is this is this something that could be solved by Bitcoin migrating the the source code migrating to another programming language? Does that no, does that not make re- sense? Not not uh, not really. I think maybe what more what you're searching for is could we could we add quantum resistant encryption into Bitcoin so that all new transactions are resistant to quantum computers? I think that is possible. It's not really a programming language question. It's an algorithms question. Basically, ECDSA, elliptic curve cryptography, is not quantum resistant. We have to replace it with something else eventually, right? And so, and so that's very doable, I think, without soft with with just soft forks and just with new code because we're not making a claim about historical UTXOs and historical scripts. We're just giving you the option to get into quantum resistant stuff. Like I think that should be an easier conversation, and I think it's one we'll eventually have. And we actually have the tools to do that, right? We have we have SegWit, so we can add a little SegWit versions and we can add post-quantum stuff. Like that's actually going to be pretty easy. The hard part is going to be what should we do as a community? What is our monetary policy towards existing UTXOs that are going to be stolen if we do nothing? It's just a hard question. I don't know the it answer. Is. Still, they would have to break more than just SHA-256, right? I think the argument is that they can't break. There's no, there's not an argument right now that says the quantum computers can break those algorithms. Those are hashing algorithms. So the idea is that like P to PKH should be safe against quantum computers because they can crack open the hashes to see the public keys that they need to break. They can break the public key cryptography part, but they can't break the hash part right now. That's the belief, at least with quantum computers. And that's why Satoshi's P to PK coins are like a potential concern because they aren't protected with that hash. Now, how many coins is that? Hard to know. It's it estimated at near a million coins. It's hard to know. It's a treasure for future pirates to find. It's just sitting there. Yeah. Like, and, and part of me almost thinks that, like, right now, the market's understood business use case for quantum computing is drug discovery, more or less. Like, the idea is like, we often think of like quantum computing as, oh, it solves a traveling salesman problem because it's all the, the stores at once or some metaphor that people have in their minds for how it works. But I think a lot of people who are in the industry, don't think of quantum computing's chief application as being those kinds of arbitrary optimization problems. They think of it as the chief purpose of quantum computing will be to simulate quantum systems, which is to say molecules. Uh, and why do you want to simulate molecules? Because you're doing material science where you're doing drug, drug discovery. And so like, that's the understanding that like, this is where money will come from. And like the funding for quantum computing comes from people who want to use it to solve those problems. But at some point, like, these curves cross, right? And the value of a million Bitcoin sitting in a P2PK address, set of addresses is larger than the, than the revenue you would get by new drugs or whatever it is that you would seek to bring to market. This is just a terrifying like mix of things for me, right? So, you, so you're saying that at some point, uh, quantum computing and the, the idea that it even has a chance of, of hacking those million, supposed million coins that idea alone will be enough to fund quantum computing research? Don't know. It really depends on the rates of all these curves. But like, I think yeah, there, but is, given, give, okay, there is given, a regime. Given a high yes. enough Bitcoin price. Yes, yeah. yes. Like there's, if progress on drug discovery and other things is slower than we expect, and Bitcoin's price rises higher than we expect, and the Bitcoin community takes no actions to protect existing P2PK coins, that's a perfect storm for someone to realize, wait a minute. Like if I spend a billion dollars or $10 billion or even a hundred billion dollars to figure out how to build a quantum computer of that scale, I can steal $3 trillion in Bitcoin. Now, maybe that tanks the network and that's why they don't do it. But eventually like it's just curves, right? Eventually that cost will get lower and lower and Bitcoin keep getting higher and higher. 
So the community of Bitcoin, we're going to have to confront this issue at some point and decide what we want to do about it. I mean, there's so much to unpack here because like to a certain extent, like as we move further into hyper-Bitcoinization, I think consumerism is on its way out. Like uh, we, Bitcoiners have a lower time preference or they adopt a lower time preference because they see that delayed gratification is better because Bitcoin is deflationary, so it goes up in purchasing power over time. So you're not incentivized to spend and spend and spend all the time. And if I extrapolate that thought vector far enough into the future, uh, my conclusion is that we will prioritize quality over quantity so much so that this whole consumerist culture is going away and we're getting into a state where people only make really, really sound investments. They only buy really things that they really, really need. Uh, we might even get to, to a state where, you know, materialism isn't such a big thing in the world anymore. I mean, people, are, of course, are still going to crave stuff, but not if they know the opportunity cost of missing out on the, the increased purchasing power of Bitcoin, which will like 10x every decade into forever. So, say if that thesis is true, and if it plays out over a couple of hundred years that it actually does that, then people will slowly but surely learn. And if that is the case, then having a hundred billion dollars in Bitcoin or having three trillion makes very little difference, like, because you're not going to use them anyway. <laughs> Even a fraction of a Bitcoin is enough to last for you and your uh, descendants forever. So, so like, these are the, the real, when I really go bonkers with the philosophy thing, uh, <laughs> th these are the points I end up with. Like, everyone says they didn't. That they don't have enough bitcoins, but the opposite is true. Everyone has enough bitcoins. Even no coiners have enough bitcoin given a, on a long enough time frame, you know. Uh, because as long as they have something to sell, at some point, they have generational wealth. If you have satoshis, you have generational wealth. There are not enough satoshis around. It's like, uh, dude, buddy, I love to believe in that. I love to believe in that story you just told me. I really would, but that does not drive with my understanding of human beings. I think if Bitcoin, if Bitcoin becomes like a global everything and it is the, the, the money of the world or whatever, 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 maybe there will be a decrease in consumerism. I, I would like to see that. But I think people are, people are just people. And there's going to be people, there's going to be socialists and communists and fascists and people of all kinds who use Bitcoin every day and never think at all about how maybe their day-to-day -day behavior is, is discordant with the principles that underlie the money that they use. I think there's absolutely no connection between those things for most people. I think the founders and the early members of the community of Bitcoin, like people who are on this call, we have a very different attitude and relationship to this system of things than an average person 50 years from now is going to feel like. Like you get reversion to the mean, you just get everything. And I think even if, even if there were meaningful trends towards the reduction in consumerism or whatever else it is, like this particular quantum computing P2PK thing that I'm talking about is sort of like, it just takes one person to fuck this up. Even if almost all of us behave responsibly and would never do this thing to harm the rest of us, one of us might. And so and Bitcoiners are not about trust, right? We don't want to trust that none of us will engage in this bad activity. Like we'll, we want to do the thing that you opened with, which is we want to make it so incredibly expensive for you to attempt to do that, that you just won't. And you'd rather put that energy into something else. Touche, touche, uh, absolute and, touche. But, but I don't know how to affect that outcome. I have no idea. I'm, I'm just a guy being like, guys, this is a problem. Eventually, one day, we should, so we should be thinking about it. But I'm not, I'm, I'm not advocating any actual actions because I don't know what's best. And also, I'm terrible at organizing. 
So I have no idea how to convince the Bitcoin community of anything. And I'm not even trying to, I'm just maybe trying to say like, one day this thing is going to be a decision that we're going to have to come and make. And this is a very good point. <laughs> I don't know what the decision should be. No, but raising awareness is, you know, crucial. If people are not aware of the problem, they can't fix the problem. So like, I, I, th I think there's a perversely, uh, you know, again, Bitcoiners like to pretend that we are some sort of like holier than thou, better than other tribes. But truthfully, a lot of us are afraid to talk about this because it requires some kind of change somewhere or it requires being okay with near 10% of the supply just disappearing or whatever at some point. Like, which, which in a way is fine. Like on a long enough time frame, it, it is an acceptable option. It, it, maybe, maybe, maybe it is, maybe it isn't. Like, cause at that point, what do you get? You get probably, if it were, if, if that were the choice, I think the outcome is in that eventually an incredibly powerful organization, whichever is the one that has the world's largest quantum computing resources now becomes the world's wealthiest entity because they stole 10% of the world's money. Yes. But that entity has only one way of getting something out of actual value for that stack of money. Because Bitcoin is not fiat. So the only way that they can leverage that is by spending the Bitcoin. Correct. They, they can't, they can't fuck with people like that you can with fiat. And, and so, so maybe, maybe it's acceptable, right? Like maybe that's completely acceptable. And, and I, it's not, it's, I'm not trying to decide the question. I'm just trying to ask it. Who knows, man? Who knows? I, I love to think about these things. So it's fantastic, fantastic stuff. And yeah, but, but the thing is, the thing is getting into this, uh, that which you can do without your own uh, type of mindset is that I've seen it in Bitcoin. Like people discover Bitcoin for the, the gains and the money and they're, they, they, they stay for the money, like, and they stay for, for philosophical reasons. Sooner or later, when you really, I mean, tumble down the rabbit hole, that's the inevitable path you take because you, you realize all these other things about life and that you don't need a ton of shit and stuff. And yeah, I guess what, what you said, like the hard part is to, is to see if, is this applicable to everyone or is it just to like really, really curious people who are willing to, to give up on their own beliefs? Or like, even just 99% uh, of us, maybe 99% of us experience that change long-term as a species. Yeah. <laughs> There's still that one asshole that might steal the coins. It reminds me of, uh, have you seen a, Gary Larson ca cartoon. Uh, it's just a, a picture, four frames. Uh, it says the four personality types. And there's a glass of water in front of the guy. Uh, so the, you know, those Gary Larson fat guys. There's, so there's a, a, a glass of water. It's filled, the, half of the, uh, the glasses, uh, it's filled 50%. So the first personality type says the glass is half full. The second personality type says the glass is half empty. The third personality type says the glass is half full, half empty. I don't really know. Um, can't decide. And the fourth personality type, this would be the guy that would steal the million bitcoins, says, Hey, I ordered a cheeseburger. <laughs> and there's, there's always the, Hey, I ordered a cheeseburger personality type that just want to destroy things. So that's, that's unfortunate, I guess. The show is also sponsored by Zellox. That's X E L L O X. They've developed the excellent Yokis Seed Plate Kit, the solution against everything life throws at you, including fire, water, corrosion, and pests. The Yokis package includes three stainless steel plates and a pen-sized electric engraver so you can write your seed on metal just like writing on paper. And they have big plans. They're developing a next-gen hardware wallet too. 
But for now, you can order the Yokis to safeguard your keys in a safe and convenient way. Check out Zellox at zellox.io. That's X-E-L-L-O-X dot I-O. And finally, we're also sponsored by BitcoinBook.shop, your source for Bitcoin books in over a dozen languages, including all of Knut's books. Their mission is to translate great Bitcoin and freedom-oriented books into as many languages as possible, while also publishing original titles to get even more knowledge out there. Use code FOOTPRINT for 10% off your purchases at BitcoinBook.shop. Drew, before we... Yeah. Uh, sorry for stealing the show there for a while. Uh, any last last words uh, before we, we uh, end this uh, show? For me, no. This has been awesome. Thanks for just a wide ranging, you know, fun conversation. Um, it's early. It's a little. It's in the morning for me, so this is a great way to open my day. I'm I'm just, I'm just gonna be buzzing with all sorts of fun ideas while I go through the rest of my meetings. Oh, lovely to hear. I'm gonna I'm gonna have a long walk after this, and uh, my brain is full with new ideas as well. I love getting into these, you know, nerdy philosophical stuff. Sauna for me, it's uh, heating up right now. Drew, uh, can, can, uh, can you tell our, uh, our listeners uh, where to find you and uh, follow what uh, you're doing? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, so I work at Unchained and you can check our business out at unchained.com. Come learn about better collaborative custody, security, and financial services. I blog on an Unchained's blog. So that's unchained.com slash blog. You can find a lot of my articles about Bitcoin, astronomy, and space, and these market ideas kind of sitting there. Um, and then I do tweet. Um, Drew's uh, just my fir- first and last name, Drew Bansel, um, at Twitter. Um, I'm doing that less and less these days. I'm getting less value out of Twitter. I'm, I can't decide if it's me or if it's the network, but um, I am there. Fantastic. Thank you so much for joining us on the Freedom Footprint Show. Thank Thanks you, Drew. Have a, have, a, have a great day. See you next time. So what did you think of that episode with Drew? He has some really interesting thoughts about the future of Bitcoin. What was your favorite moment? Let us know. You can send us a boostergram on Fountain, leave us a comment on YouTube, or get in touch on Noster or Twitter. If you're watching on YouTube, don't forget to like the episode and subscribe to the channel. Our show's sponsors are Wasabi Wallet, Orange Bill App, The Bitcoin Way, Zellox, and BitcoinBook.shop. Check out their details in the description. That's all for now. See you next time, and thanks for listening. Thank you.